Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, vaping. Is it good for you or not? We try to get to the bottom of the discussion. Civility in Ontario Parliament. Is the lack of it making voters cynical? Can we do anything about it? And is the Me Too movement still moving? Or have we forgotten about it? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Health Canada, we were uh, talking about this earlier on in the week. Health Canada has been monitoring the situation involving vaping-related illnesses. To talk more about this issue and whether it is uh, or how healthy, how safe an alternative is it, is it that at all? Uh, let's bring in Professor David Hammond, University of Waterloo, and he is with us now. Uh, th- thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. My pleasure. So... Where do we start with this? I mean, uh, what message do you have for those that are vaping? Here's the bottom line. Uh, Vaping is substantially less harmful than smoking, but it's likely to be harmful. Uh, What we've seen in the U.S. is literally hundreds of cases of severe pulmonary disease, several deaths. These cases are likely not the result of general vaping, um, but the fact that there's probably a contaminant in some of these products. And in fact, a lot of those cases have been uh, related to THC or cannabis vape oils. People have been using all different sorts of products, so it's a little bit unclear. But the idea is that these are probably special cases due to contaminants rather than the general effects of vaping. It's not as bad as smoking, but it is uh, almost certainly going to be harmful if people do it in the long run. So uh, in regard to the examples you were just given, is this about the product or yeah. the method of delivery here? Great point. Uh, it's about the product. Um, and, you know, people say vaping. Well, we could be talking about nicotine. We could be talking about THC. Um, so, you know, we say it's less harmful than smoking. That's because almost nothing is as bad as smoking. But vaping at some point involves inhaling chemicals into your lungs. And depending upon what those chemicals are, they can irritate the lungs and cause damage. So um, we, we kind of talk to two different groups. If you're an adult smoker, you can't quit other ways and you're using vaping to quit, that's probably going to give you a little bit of a health benefit. If you are not a smoker, there is no reason to be vaping uh, and you should have concerns about what you're breathing into your lungs. Uh, in regard to the problems that we've seen and the issues that we've seen come up in the United States, have these all been re- related to the certain type of product that they were using? Uh, the short answer is, is we don't know. Uh, people, we don't even know if, I can't even say half the folks that have had these problems were using THC products. We know a lot of them were using some sort of THC vape oil. Um, and I would say that one message to your listeners now, there are many different ways of consuming cannabis. Um, right now, vape oils, THC vape oils, you can't buy them legally. You'll be able to do that in December. In the meantime, you should not be buying any illegal vape oils uh, from the black market and using them. These are some of the products that have, that have been implicated uh, in these deaths. And by the way, the average age of these cases is around 19 years of age. So we're not talking about people that have been vaping a long time. We're talking about kids that have done this and they fall very ill. That's a separate issue than the type of nicotine e-cigarettes you might buy in your corner store. And the short answer is we don't know if those are involved or not. Uh, that being said, uh, many thought that cannabis was relatively safer compared to uh, tobacco or nicotine or what have you. So uh, is this saying that you shouldn't be vaping cannabis? 
You know, we've seen a really interesting change in the cannabis market, right? Most people still smoke it. People that used to vape it, you'd take the dried herb, the flower, and you'd put it in a chamber and it would heat it up and you'd inhale the vapor. Mm -hmm. What we've seen in the last decade is more highly manufactured and processed cannabis products. So you have your edibles, you have oils, and THC vape oils are one of them. When you process them like that, then there could be other chemicals in the solution and things like that. So, um, so it really depends on how you're using your cannabis. But anyone who likes to vape cannabis, my recommendation to them would be vape from dried herb and throw out your THC vape oil at least until we have legal products available at the end of the year and they have to pass some sort of product standards. Uh, so on that note, with the legalization, as you said, is coming in December, um, with the light legalization of vaping oils, mm. should that reduce this problem? It should help. Um, the short answer, it's, it's like a lot of other black market products, which is, look, how many Canadians would be comfortable buying um, black market uh, prescription drugs? Um, mm. So you just don't know what's in them. And, and most of them, to be clear, don't have these contaminants. In fact, we have not seen any of these cases yet in Canada. Um, But the fact remains is that you don't really know what's in there. And we need to disabuse people of this idea that, well, vaping is safe, it's fine. You're inhaling chemicals and and you don't want crap uh, in those chemical solutions. And right now, no one can give you that guarantee if you're buying them from the black market. Uh, Obviously, the legalization of recreational cannabis, vaping, it's all relatively new, I guess. What what does the public not know about vaping? Well, again, there's a lot of confusion between something can be harmful but less harmful than smoking. I mean, that's the one piece. Uh, The other piece is that... You know, as we tell people, try if you're if you use a lot of cannabis, you don't want to be inhaling smoke regularly. Um, but when you think about what other products you might use, a lot of the more processed ones are really potent. So your d- average dried herb, people talk about THC levels going up. They used to be like two, three, four, five percent in the 70s. Now your average dried herb, 15, 20 percent. With some of these um, oils and things like that, it's 70, 80, 90 percent THC. So they're really potent. A lot of Canadians are confused about how much do I take of an oil, how much do I eat of an edible. Our government's trying to get some packaging and labeling that's easier for folks to understand, but do try and educate yourself about what type and how much you're going to consume. How how much more research are we going to see on this? Many many said that we didn't have the research before legalization, um, whether it's vaping or cannabis. Are we seeing more research into this? We are, uh, but, you know, we're sort of really scratching the surface and, and the Centers for Disease Control and Health Canada and other groups are scrambling to deal with these outbreaks because, quite frankly, we don't have a good idea about what devices people are using and what they're putting in those devices. And so, look, this isn't going away. People like to vape because you carry it around in your pocket. It sits there and it waits for you. You press a button or you inhale on it. It can't, doesn't smell. Uh, you can do it discreetly. I have students that vape in my classroom. So this is in many ways an ideal recreational way of taking your drugs, but we need to think more about what's the device and what are people putting in there and, and what are the problems that come out of it. Is there anything more known about the source of the product in the United States that has made these people ill? Not other than they think it has to do with um, vitamin E oil, which they've mixed as the base. And, and that's something that's in a lot of food products. It's something that's in a lot of skin creams. 
But as soon as you heat something and inhale it, you can get the release of toxic chemicals. So the short answer is, is we don't. There's a lot of concern out there. Um, again, the good news is that we haven't yet seen any of these cases in Canada. Will we see more regulation around uh, these devices, around vaporizers, and, and how, they're, how they're made and standards there? Oh, I think so. And I think that probably the greatest beneficiary is consumers. Again, all other things being equal, vaping is not as harmful as smoking. Um, but, you know, and it's not going away, as I said. And so I think consumers want to have some confidence that they're not inhaling, you know, any excess toxic chemicals here. So, um, again, let's get our head around this. Even when we say the word vaping, it's unclear. We talk about nicotine or cannabis or THC. So um, when I say people need to educate themselves, that's consumers, that's governments, it's researchers like myself. Uh, what are your thoughts and, and your fears in regard to kids and vaping? You, you said that, you know, if you're not smoking, continue, yeah. if you're not smoking now, you, you shouldn't be starting vaping per se. Uh, what about your concerns? We hear about the flavored products, all this sort of thing. Yeah, two very different groups, adult smokers and kids. We have seen a lot of kids pick it up. A lot of kids think of smoking is something their grandpa or their dad or mom does. Vaping is much more modern and sleek. In provinces like Ontario, there are nice, beautiful ads next to the chocolate bar and slurpee machine in the store. So what we haven't done is a very good job um, promoting these products as a potential cessation aid for smokers. Uh, What the companies and things have done a great job at is making them really appealing to kids. Um, So that's a fail. Uh, That is one of the top priorities. Health Canada is looking at it, but man, this market moves quickly, and we can't afford to wait a year and a half for new regulations to come out, which say, oh, you can't uh, have a beautiful picture of an e-cigarette with a bursting strawberry, you know, right on top of the bubble gum, and then express surprise that kids are interested in using it. Yeah, like, shouldn't these right off the bat have been regulated exactly the way tobacco products are, or is that putting them in an unfair category? In some respects, I think that that's certainly fair. And, you know, we changed the laws in March 2018 so that it would be legal to sell these products. That's fine. Smokers should have access to them. They are less harmful than smoking. But I think we opened the door too wide. And and so Health Canada is trying to close it, but it's taking a long time. And, uh, you know, this is not rocket science here. When you have flavors like bubble gum and peanut butter and jam, when you have companies that refer to their products as the iPhone of e-cigarettes, don't be surprised that kids are interested in doing it. Um, So, you know, that's a bit of an own goal, uh, and it's going to take a while to fix it, but there's a lot of urgency to fixing it, partly because if we overreact to this and people say, well, maybe we should ban these products, they're not going away. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily want to drive them to the black market. And, um, and they do have a role to play with adult smokers, but we need to target that better. How much less harmful are they than smoking? Um, uh, yeah. what, what is the actual harm from vaping? I mean, that's literally the billion-dollar question. You hear numbers, people say, oh, 95% safer. If anyone gives you a specific number, they don't know, and we won't know for 10 or 20 years because unlike the cases in the U.S., it it takes 10 or 20 years even from smoking before you see most of those diseases. Let's just say it's substantially less than smoking. There should be no more debate about that. We also can almost certainly say there's going to be some harm. Boy, we'd all like to know just exactly what the relative difference is, but we have enough to say, smokers, if this is helping you get off the smoke, good. Kids, do not start it, and if you have, get off it now. 
the principle behind this, uh, from what I know, it's heating the product to an incredibly hot temperature. Uh, I guess that's why it doesn't smell the way that it yeah. normally does. But what does that do to the lungs? You know, most of the health effects from smoking tobacco are from combustion. I always say if you take any organic material like my cotton t-shirt and light it on fire, you'll see some of the same carcinogens. Vaping, what it does is it heats it to a lower level so you don't get all the tar and other chemicals and smoke that are produced. And the idea is that um, because you're starting with a solution, you don't have some of the same nasty chemicals. So scientists would cringe when I say this, but you basically have a lot fewer chemicals uh, at typically much lower levels when you vape. So that's why it's better than smoking, but it's still inhaling chemicals. Uh, What do you think is needed moving forward here? How do we get a handle on this? Uh, We need product standards to make sure that consumers know there's no excess contaminants or toxicants in their liquids. Uh, we need to do a better job trying to communicate what I just said about sort of relative harm. Um, and we need to make sure that, look, these products, they're not going away, but we need to, I don't see any role for advertising them and promoting them to the broad public, especially when they're combined with tasty flavors. So um, they can be out there, people can use them, but I really don't, I think we want to minimize the promotion of these things in general. Considering the way uh, with the new laws around cannabis and how it's distributed now, are you surprised that, that, that vaporizers have had the free reign that they've had? Well, you know, they've kind of, it's funny, right? Because vaporizers are a device, you, and you load them up with different types right. of substances. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of, they're not quite a regulated medical device. So they've kind of come in through the cracks. We tried making them essentially illegal. That didn't work. Lots of people wanted to use them. Now we regulate them, but we haven't quite figured out how to regulate them. So I'm not surprised. We don't, you know, prescribe drugs and tell people to smoke them. If part of this is really cutting the cord between recreational drug delivery and smoke, that's a good thing. But, um, it still means we have unanswered questions about the type of devices in terms of vaporizers uh, that people are using. What are the different types? Excuse my ignorance here. Yeah. I've, I've never had one, but what, what are there different types? Are there different types for different purposes, different products? Sure, yeah. There's some types that you'll see people buying, like bottles of liquid, and they fill them themselves. Yeah. The most popular ones are cartridges. That's like Juul, where you, you use a cartridge, you're done, you put in a new one. Um, same idea for THC cannabis. Sometimes you buy them as like disposable vape pens. So they come in all sorts. Some people like to mod them and tweak them and do different things. But probably the most important differences is in terms of what's in the liquid that you're vaping, the level of nicotine, how highly concentrated it is, the level of THC, etc. So again, you're getting back to what you're putting into it. Totally. Yeah, there's, they... they Obviously, work in tandem there, but those are the two pieces, and that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to untangle this outbreak and figure out what actually people were vaping. Is there a danger around the devices themselves? We've seen reports of them exploding, that sort of thing. You know, those are pretty rare. Um, There was a time not so long ago that um, you think about, for example, a cigarette. Well, cigarettes are one of the leading causes of, of death from house fires and accidental fires. So, you know, there's always a concern when you have a battery and an electric device. But, you know, you can think about it in laptops where, like, yeah, there are rare incidents of laptops, you know, burning someone's lap. But those are pretty rare for the most part. But, again, they speak to having some basic product standards.
Is this is are these devices on the increase? Are you seeing them uh, on the increase more and more from a recreational standpoint? Yeah, I mean it's interesting to think in Canada our recreational drug market has changed dramatically. You now can go to a store and buy cannabis products legally. You can go to a store and buy, uh, you know, e-cigarettes and vape nicotine. Um, so yeah, it's changed a lot and. Again, there are a lot of very good reasons why people who are using drugs anyway use these devices. I mentioned them before. They're easy to use. They don't smell. They're not dirty. They're very discreet. Um, so, you know, those aren't necessarily bad things. It's just about learning what role they have in our society and how much we want them, you know, explicitly advertised and promoted to people. Um, when these uh, types of oils become legal, are we going to see more uh, more regulation around distribution of mm. devices? Are we going to see commonality there as well? Yes and no. I mean, there's some basic standards, but I, you know, interestingly, our in our country, there are really no THC or potency limits for these types of products. And as I said, they can get as high as ninety percent. I think that's something that we'll want to think about carefully over time. Um, you know, here's the thing. You can have something that's half as potent. If you want a little bit more, you just take an extra puff on it. But when you have something that potent right out of the gate, it's kind of hard for a new user to sort of, you know, mm. modify their dose and things like that. So we've kind of said, well, there's all the stuff in the black market, so I guess we should let all that stuff on the legal market so it outcompetes the black market. But I think we'll need to reconsider over time whether we might actually just want to put some limits on potency, especially because that doesn't actually stop people from taking however much they want. Hmm. Professor David Hammond has been with his chair in Applied Public Health, University of Waterloo. Health Canada has been monitoring the situation involving vaping, involving vaping-related illnesses. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've witnessed uh, politicians in action for years uh, in the legislature, in the House. Uh, We see what happens. uh, We've seen what's happened with Brexit in the UK. And my goodness, um, it it seems that uh, they're the most boisterous over in the UK when it comes to this sort of thing. And the order, although the speaker in the uh, UK has now stepped down. Uh, after this prorogue of, uh, of Parliament. But, you know, just... Uh, and you have to wonder if uh, the public just turns turns the whole stuff off. They just get tired of watching the bickering and, and, and stuff back and forth. I mean, down in the States, uh, prior to the last election, we had senators reading green eggs and ham and filibusters and such. I guess that doesn't really say much to the behavior. But uh, now uh, the Speaker at the Ontario Legislature... Uh, who, who's been, um, um, I guess, trying to analyze this and, and figure out how to get a handle on the ledge. And it, it seems that it, it, it's getting a bit out of hand. And uh, he is asking uh, everybody to dial it back, dial it down as uh, they get ready for the fall session. Let's bring in Andrea Perella, Associate Professor, Director, Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy, Wilfrid Laurier University, and is on the line now. Andrea, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So uh, has this gotten worse over years, over time? I think it has. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, I think it really started... um, let me go back even a little further in time. There was always a little bit of heckling, and more than a little bit of heckling that goes on in parliaments. I mean, just architecturally, they're designed to be confrontational with government on one side facing off 
literally uh, opposition on yeah. the other side. So it's already designed to be confrontational. So at times there are um, debates and, and sessions where somebody heckles or says something a little bit out of line. So that's always been the case. But, but uh, I would say in the last couple of decades, a you know, generation or so, it has gotten worse because uh, they've allowed TV cameras in these chambers. So then it became theater. So then the public has a chance to see how uh, uh, to, to actually witness the sessions, uh, but it also gave politicians a chance to, to show off a little bit uh, for their voters back home. So it, it got worse when uh, the public was able to, to witness what's going on. How odd is that? Because I remember when they started allowing cameras in, I mean, it was a big to-do. I mean, how come we can't allow cameras in a, in a public place? But I guess now we know the reason. It soon becomes a theater as opposed to uh, a place for elected officials to, uh, to do their business. So how do you balance that theater uh, with, with, with the job that you're, you're trying to do? I mean, obviously the whole idea with cameras uh, being there is to show the public what's going on. When does it become a detriment? Well, I, I should add, there should be cameras in these chambers. The public should have a right to, to um, uh, watch their elected officials in session. It, it should not be closed. Uh, so I, I, I agree with the cameras, but your question is, what do we do about it? Well, this is something that's been going on for the last couple of years, decades. It's been getting worse. The question is, why is it getting worse? Um, I, I don't think there is a quick fix. Um, there are rules. There are rules of etiquette and rules of order and parliamentary rules. And, and the role of the speaker is to make sure that everybody abides by those rules. Um, but the question is, why are they being broken so often? I don't know if there's a quick fix. Uh, I think we are in um, an angry phase of politics uh, and mm. many reasons for that. And you and I have talked a little bit about that in previous shows. Uh, but we are in an angry phase where voters are more angry. They elect politicians who are more abrasive. Um, and so that just creates an even acrimonious environment in these chambers. And it's not unique to Ontario or to Canada or to Britain. I've been looking around. I mean, even India um, has ha- similar problems. So, so this is not unique um, to, to the Anglo-American world. And if you look around, you'll see parliaments everywhere going through the same thing. Is it up to the speaker to keep it civil? At the end of the day, who does set the tone? Well, you know, that's like saying, is it up to the referee to keep a, a game civil? It's up to the players, number one. Hmm, good point. Uh, and, and if the players don't want to play by the rules, then it's up to the speaker to, to enforce the rules. Um, but that's a lot. When, and as, as, a, as an educator, I can say, you know, it's, it'd be great if all my students are well-behaved, and they usually are. What happens if there's a group where they mostly aren't well-behaved? What do I do? There's not much I can do. Uh, there is not much, any, ask any school teacher, there's not much you can do other than cracking the whip and, and, and becoming authoritarian. Uh, but that's not right. necessarily a solution to the problem. It just stamps it out temporarily. Uh, so it really should not be just up to the speaker to maintain order. It should be up to the members elected members to to walk into the chamber with an attitude of being civil. Uh, You know, you were talking about now that the cameras are are there, uh, politicians looking to make a stand, perhaps grandstanding, uh, trying to make it look to their constituents that they're doing something. Uh, you know the ability from one for one party to pin the other on on, on some sort of issue. Uh, is there any way we can still do that, but be civil about it? Well, of course, there's ways we can be civil about it. But um, 
that's that's a discussion that happens later. A question I ask is why aren't we civil? And like I said, we're angry. And I think I, I think what, what what we need is is more than just parliamentary decorum. Um, I, I think what is needed is to find some some new consensus uh, and and to, to to look at it from the big picture um, from the big picture point of view. The post Second World War consensus seems to be breaking down, and that's the consensus about the the role mm. of the government in the economy and welfare states and public goods. That's breaking down. Um, so when you break down a consensus, you unleash the political forces. Right. And that's what you're seeing. So now. this is a result of something, not the cause. Yeah. It's a result of something else, I, I believe. It's not a result of, of just uh, politicians behaving badly. Right. Uh, it's a result of, of a context in which people are... are, are you know, politics is, is, is extremely violent. Uh, we, we should you know, appreciate that, that, that the reason we have a democracy is to stamp out the violence so that we're not killing each other in the street. You know, the reason we have constitutions and all that is to make politics civil. But politics at its core is extremely violent and dangerous. Uh, and when there's a consensus, it's peaceful. When the consensus breaks down, we get closer and closer to that violent core. And I think that's what we're seeing now. People are insulting each other. They're heckling each other. They're... Um, um, drowning each other out. So when a, a member of the opposite party is speaking, they're shouting and clapping and, and stamping on desks. It, it's uh, it, it's one step closer to the violent core of politics. Uh, does that not make the public more cynical about politicians, though? Of course, it doesn't make them more. Uh, so why do we want to see it then? Why has it sparked up with cameras in 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 the in the ledge and such? Because uh, at the end of the day, if 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 the politicians know the public doesn't want to see this, why are we seeing it? Well, it, it's a bit of a um, um, it's a bit of a catch twenty two. Um, if you stand up and sound civil, you sound boring. It doesn't really draw much attention. Uh, now, uh, the, the advent of cameras in the parliamentary chambers did not necessarily make the chambers more, more unruly. It just made them more theatrical. Uh, hmm. But over time, the theater turned in, in, into violent theater, into, uh, into um, controversial um, uh, theater, that, uh, in, in, into what we're seeing now, into the unruly insults and heckling. Um, but uh, that's part of part of uh, the being a, a public servant, in that you have to show that you're doing a good job. Uh, boring does not always work. Uh, boring works when you're government, but when you are on TV, you, you should sound yeah. a, a little bit more dramatic than that. Otherwise, otherwise you will lose appeal, and opposing competing candidates may take your seat accordingly. So there is an incentive for politicians to to grandstand and, and one-up each other in terms of the, the theatrics. Is it necessary? I don't think it's necessary, but what do you do when you have cameras? Uh, well, it makes it appear that the politician is more interested in themselves and their brand than they are in what they're actually doing. Well, when they're, when they're invoking such theatrics, they're often speaking on behalf of their constituents or, or constituency. Um, but, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it does look as if they're, they're just arguing for arguing's sake. They're just, they're just shouting... Uh, just to be heard, and not necessarily to defend some some passionate uh, ideas that that are cherished by their constituents. So, and, yeah, and again, look what's happening in the UK with Brexit. My goodness, I mean, it's it, like all hell is broken loose there. And, and exactly, and there's a consensus that has broken down, and when and when that consensus breaks down, you have these violent political forces that are unleashed. And, and okay, by violent, I, I don't mean um, uh, yep. weapons, but 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 close to that. Like when when. Um, 
there, there's fighting and then there's fighting words. And right now we're at the fighting words stage. Uh, and that's what you're seeing when a consensus breaks down. And it's very dangerous in politics. So that there should be efforts to, to reach a new consensus. But that, that, there's no magic recipe for that. So how do we get back to civility in a, man, in a mad world? Again, there's no magic yeah. recipe. Um, um, there's, there's, there's probably a, a foot, a new alignment or realignment. And there are other challenges that may be forcing some new consensus, like, like the climate crisis. Uh, like it or not, it's here. Um, you know, deny it or don't deny it, it's here. And so there are uh, groups that are, that are mobilizing and realigning in, in light of this new threat. The second, the, the post-war consensus was aligned around the threat of, of the Soviet bloc, of communism. Um, and so there was a consensus to, to, to forge a, some kind of a, a peaceful, uh, generous welfare state to, to offset any, any sentiment among, among your citizens to, to be sympathetic to communism. Um, well, none of the communism fell, the political forces unleashed, and now we have a search for a new consensus. And maybe, maybe uh, the climate crisis will force a new consensus on us. In the sense that it will bring us together. It's, It'll a, bring us together. it's a unifying factor. There's nothing like a threat, yeah. like a, a war or some other or natural disaster. There's nothing like a threat to bring us together and say, all right, let's, let's stop the nonsense and let's work together. There's nothing like that to bring people together. Is it the leadership that's responsible for the divisiveness and the tone? Well, the leadership is, is partly responsible for sure. I mean, we've been hearing about um, you know, Doug Ford insisting that his... Uh, uh, MPPs uh, stand up and give him an, a standing ovation whenever he speaks. Uh, again, that's all part of theater. Um, but leaders certainly have a role to play here. In a parliamentary context, leaders have a lot of power. So, again, as we've talked to in the past, uh, we live in a very divisive world. It seems like we live in a land of extremes. Either you're way over here or you're way over there. How, how do we, is it going to take a disaster to bring us back together? I mean, we all watched a great tennis match with, with uh, uh, Bianca over the, over the weekend. That seemed to bring us together. Absolutely. Uh, everybody yeah. wondered why, you know, where is that missing in the world? Yes, and the Raptors winning. Yes, so the, the, yeah. these uh, glorious moments do bring us together. Um, but only for a little while. Uh, there, there are very few people now still celebrating the Raptors' win, and, and this is not to belittle their victory. It's just that it's, it's great, you know. So for a short period of time, we're all happy. We're all feeling great being Canadian um, because we're doing great on the world stage. Um, but after that, we have to face, to face up to our daily realities. Uh, I, I like to think that it does not take or require a disaster to bring about a new consensus, um, but at the very least, at least a threat of a disaster may, may wisen up some people into saying, we have to stop this divisiveness because uh, we're stronger together, uh, divided, we're just going to sink. Uh, obviously, we're, we were talking about the Ontario legislature and how things have, have gotten unruly there. How much is the Premier responsible for this? Um, well, like I said, the, the, the Premier has, um, there has been reported that the Premier has indicated to his members that they need to uh, give him a standing ovation whenever uh, he or any of his ministers um, uh, make a speech in, in the legislature. So that's partly, um, partly responsible for the, 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 the... And now I understand the opposition is trying to yeah. outdo that. Exactly. And, and then you know, next thing you know, we've got anarchy in our hands. And, and, and again, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. So yeah, if if yeah. one side is, is being loud... Uh, it, it does not really help you by being silent. You, you have to be as loud, if not louder, 
Um, so it's a bit of a catch-22. It's a bit of a vicious circle. Is the public getting tired of all of this? And by that, I mean the showbiz, the theater. As you said, uh, now that cameras are, are, are inside these, these houses, that, um, that the politician does have a certain responsibility uh, to perform there. I mean, many would say that, you know, Justin Trudeau's uh, charisma helped him uh, in, in the last election. It has the pendulum, and we see certainly what's happening with Donald Trump in the United States. Uh, are, is the pendulum swinging back and all of a sudden people, uh, voters are, are going to, you know what, I need less charisma, I need more action, I need more calm uh, unity in my leadership? I'm not too sure if voters have that as top of mind. I also wonder to what extent voters are really tuned in to what's happening. I mean, they may be hearing some secondhand reporting about the shenanigans that are going on in these parliaments and these legislatures, but I'm not too sure to what extent voters are tuned in to, to, to um, uh, the CPAC and all these other parliamentary right. cable uh, or, or even watching the news. Uh, but, but they hear about it through secondhand sources. Uh, but it just um, what it does is it, it just um, it reinforces this image that, that politicians are, are just just gas bags um, and and it may turn them off from engaging in politics um, whether it leads for the from, uh, whether it leads voters to demand that their, that their elected leaders are more civil I don't know uh, but it just plays into the on uh, the, the ongoing cynicism that people have about politics and that's dangerous too because we want people to engage not necessarily to run for office but definitely to to participate in one form or another, school boards even, uh, in one form or another to participate in, in, in their um, many opportunities that exist to, to uh, influence the direction of their communities and their societies. So if they keep hearing about the gas bags of politics, then, then they'll just say, forget about it. I don't want to join that circus. Will anything positive come out of the era we're living in now? Um, I like to think that... I'm sure something will. Let me rephrase that. What positive will come out of what we're going through now? Well, um, there, there's, uh, we're seeing people who are joining into politics uh, who are saying that you know, they, they, want, they want to see politics done differently. Uh, whether they're green candidates or whether they're um, you know, some um, uh, candidates who are running for the leadership of the Liberal Party, for instance. I mean, this, is, this is also true of other parties where they're saying, you know, politics needs to be done differently. Uh, in the United States, you hear about you know bipartisanship. We need to return to bi- a bipartisan era where yeah. Republicans and Democrats can work together and not just you know throw mud at each other. Uh, so we're hearing more and more people saying, you know, this, there's a market to be filled, and maybe there is a market to be filled, a political market to be filled, uh, where uh, you're, you're promoting uh, collaboration as opposed to competition. Uh, we've seen the Green Party uh, rise in the last couple of years, uh, certainly in polls and and, uh, and the attention that they are now receiving. Is this a result of that? Is is the Green Party on the rise because of their policies or because people are looking for another third party option? A little bit of both. I mean, uh, we have to acknowledge that more and more people are worried about the environment, and the Green Party can be said to own that issue. You know, there, are, there is a concept of what they call issue ownership, where one party is seen to be more credible on a particular um, issue domain. And uh, clearly the, the environment falls right into the Green Party's issue domain. It, it's really what defines them. Even though they're more than just the environment, they, they have other policies. But the, if you're concerned about 
if you're really, really concerned about the environment, then the Green Party is certainly a, a consideration. It seems that though a lot are interested or, or at least, uh, you know, uh, kicking the tires, but don't necessarily know much of the policy beyond green. That's right. And this is similar to what the NDP used to be, where they say, yeah, the NDP seems like a harmless party. Uh, so people would consider voting for um, any such third party. Um, whether they actually do so come election day is really a, a tough call to make at this stage. Uh, but what we normally see is that people revert to to the the party that they used to vote for or they had vote for they they have voted for in the past. Um, but the Green Party's ascendancy these, these days is partly due to the, um, the the concerns over the environment, but also partly because a lot of NDP voters. Uh, or those who would otherwise have voted NDP are not sure about that party anymore, um, and they may have been disillusioned um, with uh, Justin Trudeau's reneging on some promises like electoral reform mm. um, and uh, the uh, the SNC Lavalin scandal. So there there are people looking for a party. They're looking for a political home, um, and the Green Party is not necessarily new. Um, but maybe new to people's minds, saying, hey, you know, maybe I've heard a little bit about the Green Party, let me look further. And so they are considering to vote Green, and that's possibly why you're seeing them rise up in the polls. Andrea Perella has been with us, Associate Professor, Director, Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy at Wilfrid Laurier University. Andrea, thanks so much for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Uh, Remember the Me Too movement and everything that uh, exploded and the discussions we had in and around the Me Too movement? Uh, Back in 2017, this whole thing started. Women everywhere uh, blanketed the Internet with stories illustrating just how common sexual harassment is. Uh, For some, there was hope that publicly uh, publicity and solidarity might encourage more women to speak up and more men to be less inappropriate. At least that's what University of Houston management professor uh, professors' early Me Too surveys revealed, but the latest survey from Professor Leanne Atwater and other researchers revealed in this month's Harvard Business Review puts a spotlight on how men have responded to women publicly sharing their sexually uh, sexual harassment and the backlash women face as a result. The researchers conducted anonymous surveys of hundreds of men and women across a number of industries in the U.S. What they found is one-fifth of men were reluctant to hire attractive women, while slightly more expressed reluctance about hiring women for roles that require close interactions with men. Uh, More than one quarter of men also said they did their best to avoid meeting women colleagues one-on-one. This is all against the law. You can't make hiring and these kinds of decisions on the basis of gender. But that appears to the direction uh, that we are heading. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Carlin Purcell, uh, leadership and workplace wellness coach, and is on the line with us now. Carlin, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So what are your thoughts on what has transpired since the whole Me Too movement uh, came about back in 2017? Where are we now? 
Um, I, I think we're, we're actually uh, now backwards. I mean, the Me Too movement started way before uh, women started, bravely started sharing um, our story. And I say our because I was one of those voices who added my story as well um, and, and shared it publicly. Um, I, I'm not surprised in terms of the new stats that just came out uh, because, I mean, historically there is a gender bias that... It's just a no-win situation for us women, um, no matter what. It's doomed if we don't and damned if we do. So um, this new research around men, you know, taking a step back, uh, for me, it, it, it hurts us more um, now that we have started owning our stories and, and sharing it. And, and I think that what we need right now is to call on as men, need to call on the courage and to step up and actually do the opposite And because this is the time to do it. We're 2019. Um, if there is ever a time for men to step up courageously and, 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 and bravely, I think this is the time for us to really reverse those stats and, 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 and don't pull back because of the backlash. So, uh, in other words, we're moving backwards because instead of uh, understanding, accepting, and moving forward on this issue, we're just uh, putting our head in the sand. Okay, we just won't go there. We just won't hire women. Yeah, and that does not help with the stereotypes and and if we have to if we understand the cultural and societal unconscious bias around uh sexism and, and harassment if we don't address it now it means the problem will continue and i don't know 10 15 20 years from now can men bravely look at the children and the sisters and the daughters and the mothers and say that i did everything i can to make this world a better place for you I think one out of the five, uh, the, you know, the five, the, the, the stats can clearly show you that a lot of men can't say that because everybody's taking a step back and saying, hey, guess what? Uh, I just want hire women. I want hire attractive women. And how is that contributing to the advancement um, and the empowerment of women and girls? Uh, what are your thoughts on the whole point of hiring attractive women? I, again, I don't pretend to know a lot about this, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm guessing that this affects all women. It affects all women. Um, And even with myself, you know, as a black immigrant woman who moved to Toronto in 2003, and uh, I do express myself through my fashion and my style. And the minute I shared my story, the number one thing people use to discredit me is that, well, look at her. She probably did something to deserve that. And unfortunately, no matter what we women do, we will always always be blamed and 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 with the men taking that step back again then who is going to fix it who's going to step up and say that we need to do better who's it going to fall on it's going to fall on us women so um again it's 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 really unfortunate and i think it's unfair for how we look um our size our height the way we tell our stories um is being used against us as a weapon to try to discredit us in terms of um um, our stories did you expect this? Did you expect this reaction? Could you have predicted this reaction during the whole Me Too movement? Um, you know, I mean, because I think I, most people were saying, "Well, that's wow, that's interesting. We should perhaps change that," as opposed to, "Okay, we can't go there. Let's turn our backs to it and go in the other direction." Mm-hmm. I, I, I just didn't think that was an option. 
Um, and me too. I, I honestly thought that, you know, that was an option as well. Um, I think the only way for us to, to, to change that is to address the elephant in the room. We have to address the elephant in the room. Um, the whole uncomfortableness or the fear around if I have lunch or I hire or I mentor a young woman who happens to be attractive, then it means that she might say something about me or she might accuse me of something. I think men now need to lean into the conversation and say, hey, here are my fears around X, right? Speak to other men, speak to other women, speak to their sisters, their mothers, their cousins. We are surrounded by females. Um, men should be able to, to, to really bring the conversation to the table. And we can join in and we can support if we choose to. Um, but I think it's unfair for women, again, to carry the burden of trying to, to fix this and, and, and speaking up and saying, Come on, men, let's do better. And, and, and I'm saying that, you know, with, with also the caution of around, I know that there is fear. I know that sometimes, you know, men don't know where to start and, and, and don't know where to go. And I get that. But here, here, here's something. Just look around you. There is someone around you in your circle who might have struggled with the same thing, not knowing where to start, not knowing where to say, what to say. Um, and this is your opportunity to start a new precedent and say, hey, I am not comfortable with this, this, this statistics. I want something to change. Let me start a conversation in my boardroom or in my lunchroom with the men and then give women an, an option or an opportunity to join the conversation as well. Um, I think we can start there. Uh, just start by addressing the elephant in the room. How can we change this? Take this report, print it, share it with all your male colleagues, and start a conversation around it. Do we need to relearn our manners? Because because this this seems to be one of those this seems to be one of those things where you know once you're told what's acceptable and what's not, you kind of learn it and you move on. No. Uh, yes, I, I, I think we, we, we have to go back to the basics around um, how can we create a safe space where everyone can show up? How can we create a space where everyone can unlearn a lot of the societal and, and, and cultural conditioning around women and how men treat women and how we are seen as objects in some cases and start peeling the layers around those cultural and societal um, unconscious biases. This is a great place to start. And, and you're right, maybe it is about, re, you know, learning our manners again, but also how can we learn the new workplace etiquette or the new life etiquette or the human etiquette hmm. when it comes to, 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 to the 21st century? Because it's 2019 and we can't be going backwards. We need to now address the elephant in the room for the current climate we're in. And if we don't do that, then what are we passing on to the next generation of young boys? If the men don't step up, who are the young boys going to look up to in terms of what does, who's manly, who's, who's you know, modeling manhood, who's modeling, you know, uh, courage, who's modeling bravery? If everybody's sticking their head in the sand, then what are we going to leave young boys to do? And when young boys model the same behavior they're seeing today, then we are going to blame them. Then the cycle continues. How do we break the cycle? I said we break the cycle by facing the elephant in the room and having a conversation about it and calling out the behavior. Let's start there. So when this all came about a couple of years ago with the Me Too movement, it was top of mind. It was getting lots of attention. Everybody was talking about it. Has it stalled? Have we forgotten about it? I... I I don't think we have forgotten about it, but what I'm afraid is that we'll get into a stalemate because of the current climate and looking at this, the current stats. 
um, I, there, there is a head in the sand that's happening. And I, I am afraid that we might forget about it. But with, you know, um, people like you and uh, your, uh, you know, uh, organization keeping the conversation going, I think that will help us to continue down the path of looking for better ways for us to, to, to deal with, 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 the, with the Me Too um, uh, movement and, and, and current climate. Uh, this obviously uh, started and centered around uh, uh, the movie industry and, and the Harvey Weinstein case and, and so on and so forth. Um, has it just stuck to that industry? Because many thought, you know, uh, although the movie industry might be changing a bit, and I don't know if it has, but certainly the story ha- has come up. Um, you know, many then many others uh, questioned, what about other industry? What about the music industry? Has this been something that just caught on, the Me Too movement has just caught on with that industry and not necessarily making it to the music industry or other business boardrooms or such? I, I think the movie industry sparked it, and definitely it had um, a whole lot more visibility and eyes on it because it started with some very high-profile people. Um, the conversation is not as hot in the other corporate industries, from 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 what I've seen and what I've heard, um, and even the people, the voices that that have been uh, you know uh, shared in terms of um, the the whole Me Too movement. If you look at you know black women and women of color as well, the conversation around around Me Too, our voices are not being centered and as well. So in different pockets, I would say that there is uh, more noise around it versus others. Um, and what I'd like to encourage for everyone to do is to, again, keep the conversation going. Uh, the more it's in the media, um, the more, you know, people, courage begets courage. Um, when people can see themselves reflected in the stories that are being shared, people are more apt and, 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 and a little bit braver to show up and say that, uh, you know, I, I, I can just open up and I can share my stories as well. Uh, personally, I would love to see more men showing up saying that I don't know where to start. You know, I don't have all the answers, but I would like to. Are there any other men would like to, to, to join me on this journey uh, because no one person carries the right answer but I think collectively we can start creating more spaces for us to have the brave conversation around uh, the Me Too movement. Carlin give us some basic tips guys to have those conversations what sort of questions let's pick the workplace what sort of questions should we be asking what short what sort of, of of discussion should we be having to bridge this gap? I mean, the research shows that uh, both men and women understand what sexual harassment is. And that was very clear in the report. I would say start with the report, print it out, and start with the discussion around um, would you mentor women? Would you mentor an attractive slash, you know, uh, you know, and again, and, and, and who, who describes attractive? I don't even know because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So even that word, I have a problem with it. Mm. Um, but I would say start there. Ask, ask other men, uh, why are you by the water cooler or you're out for that beer? Ask. Um, did you see the stats? Did you see the report? Have you mentored another woman? And um, did you decide not to? Did you shy away from mentoring or hiring um, um, women? Um, how did you go about doing that? How do you navigate that? Because again, it is, uh, you know, <laughs> you can't discriminate against women by not hiring us uh, because of, of how we look or the fact that mm-hmm. we are women. So I would say start there. Start with the stats. That's what start of the report. If you don't know what to say, just share the report with your male colleagues. Start a WhatsApp group or a Slack group or whatever it is and start a 
Um, I am acknowledging that there is fear around that because the minute you talk about something that threatens the identity or you know your 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 brand and, and who you are, the, the 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 work that you have done to build the image of who you are, I know that men are afraid. Uh, I'm acknowledging that there is fear. I get that. And what I would like to say is use the is that, is, fuel it, turn it into something. Is that fear not knowing what the boundaries are? I mean, because I, I, at I, the I, end of the I, day, I, I have a hard time believing that we all deep down don't know what those boundaries are. And we know when we're being offensive, we just have to stop it and alter our behavior. So is that what it is? Is it a case of putting out the guidelines and saying, here's what the boundaries are. Here's what you say in mixed company. Here's what you don't. I mean, is it is it that is it that basic? It, it, it might be. I, I don't have all the, all the all the research around what men are struggling with. But again, that'll be a great place to start, right? If we can get some men to put out a guide and say, hey, here are what the boundaries are. And, and again, look at it through the lens of intersectionality. From a cultural perspective, somebody might say something that might be okay in their culture, but it's not in another culture. So explore right. what does that look like? And most importantly, start on learning the behaviors that you grew up with that seemed okay. But deep down now, you know, it's not okay. So how can you replace those behaviors and how can you start adopting new behaviors that is a little bit more inclusive that respects women and that allows each and every one of us to thrive and learn and grow together you know where i think we see this or i've noticed this is when you greet somebody now maybe they're not a a really close friend or what have you but there's someone who you've known or what i guess it could be any situation um but when you're greeting somebody specifically in a professional in uh, situation uh, and maybe not even in a professional situation you know i remember at one point people would would go up and, and grab someone's hand or whatever and then maybe even hug them whereas now i think we're hesitant to yes. do that we're hesitant like we may think we may feel overjoyed and feel like we want to it's like oh no i don't think i can do that cuz that's invading someone's space I would say read body language. I mean, at the end of the day, we're still humans. We're still ha- we're still wired for connection. We all want to connect with each other. Yeah. Read body language. If the person is coming, hey, arms open, uh, you know, look at the body posture, look at the body language. Right. Go ahead, give him that hug. If you're not sure, ask. We're adults. We're not babies. We can use our words. And I guess is there so something again, wrong with you? Is there something wrong with saying to a person, oh, my goodness, I'm so happy to see you. Can I give you a hug? Is that yeah, wrong? Exactly. No, that's not wrong. Yeah. I say start there, right? And start there and then continue testing the ground, testing for truth, um, and, and just create an entire new agreement, set of agreements for yourself in terms of what you know is, is right or the things that you're not unsure, put it in the unsure column, and then start testing for truth. And really, start this there. applies to everything, doesn't it? Not, it's not just necessarily gender, is it? I mean, this applies exactly. to all, all walks of life. I agree a hundred percent. Agree to all what, but I really like to appeal to men to, again, if you look at the research around the brain and how it works, um, and kids, children, young men, young boys, we all learn through modeling, right? We mm-hmm. look towards what people do, not just what people say, but what they do. So I'm very disturbed and concerned about this report and the behavior around taking a step back and just not hiring women or not mentoring women. Young boys are watching you, men. They're watching and they're learning from your behavior and what you do. And what you don't do, speak volumes. Mm. So I would encourage you to show up. Say you don't know. Say you're afraid. Say you don't know where to start. Send a report. Talk about sending the report and looking for answers. Because at least those young men can now look at you and say, I now have a model. It's not perfect. Nobody's asking for perfection. But now we can make vulnerability a strength. And we can show young men that it is okay to not know. And it is okay to ask questions. 
Well said. Carlin Purcell has been with us, leadership and workplace wellness coach. Carlin, a website we can go to to find out more about you. Definitely. CarlinPurcell.com. Thank you so much for having me. You're more than welcome. How does the Me Too movement move forward is what we've been discussing. Uh, Carlin Purcell has been with us, leadership and wellness, uh, uh, sorry, leadership and workplace wellness coach. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.